in our New Testament epistle this morning, we hear some of the last words of a great spiritual father to a downcast and depressed son in the faith. Much had changed in the few short years between this letter and the previous letter that Paul sent to Timothy. Instead of being on the road to Ephesus, journeying along the way, he finds himself now in prison in Rome. He had been in prison before for preaching the gospel, but now he was in the hands of Emperor Nero, and he knew that it was the end of the line. He finds himself in the dark, damp, mamertine prison in Rome awaiting his execution. And the situation for Timothy was not much better. The church in Ephesus, where Timothy was, was in shambles. Timothy had followed Paul's instructions in the first letter and cut off some of the false teachers that were present there. But as a result, others in the church got upset and they left. To make matters worse, one of the false teachers who Timothy excommunicated, Hymenaeus, he was still hanging around and causing trouble for Timothy. And all of this had depressed Timothy, who was naturally by temperament prone to discouragement. Not only was his church in disarray, but now his friend and mentor in the faith was in prison, and the outlook was bleak. Timothy must have known the massive mantle of leadership that was about to be thrust on his young, timid shoulders. And you can imagine what might have been going through Timothy's mind. How could I ever follow in the footsteps of somebody so great as Paul? And seeing where it leads into a prison, uh, is it even worth it to keep on going? These were the questions probably in Timothy's mind, and Paul, being the great leader that he was, puts pen to parchment from his cold, dimly lit prison cell, and he writes his final recorded words. They are the words of a spiritual father to a downcast son. It's a farewell letter of sorts, similar to when Jesus gathered his disciples on the night before he died. Even the classically rigid ancient greetings of uh, New Testament letters here in 2 Timothy, it's dripping with tender affection. He says, to Timothy, my beloved child. Unlike the first letter he sent, which dealt with the church, now he's focused on Timothy's heart in 2 Timothy. Paul writes a kind of last will and testament where his main goal is to encourage his protege to stand firm and press forward. And this is clear right from the outset of the letter, which is in our passage this morning. So I want to look at the three ways that Paul encourages Timothy in our passage. The first way that Paul encourages Timothy is by speaking back to him what he sees in him. At our most recent men's lunch, our bishop, uh, Bishop Edgar, spoke about his mentors in his life, and he closed with this line. He said, we all need Christian friends who will speak back to us what they see in us and what is true. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing here to Timothy in verses 3 through 7. He tells Timothy just how much he means to him personally. Look at the number of ways that he expresses his affection for Timothy. 
He remembers him constantly in his prayers. He thanks God for Timothy, no matter how discouraged Timothy is. He longs to see him because Timothy brings him great joy. He feels compassion for Timothy. Timothy's tears become Paul's tears. And Paul begins to speak back to Timothy what he sees in him in verse 5 when he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. It's as if he's saying, now Timothy, I know that you are discouraged, and even though you can't see it, I can see it. I can see your faith. Now fan it into flame. What Paul is, is doing here reminds me a bit of a scene from The Lord of the Rings. The hobbit Frodo was given this grand task to destroy an, an evil ring that put a curse on all who wore it. And Frodo had been the chosen unlikely bearer of this ring to go to Mount Doom to destroy it. And along the way, uh, Frodo has one of the best pictures of a faithful friend in the person of Samwise Gamgee. The burden of wearing the, the ring had taken a toll on Frodo, and he says, I can't manage it, Sam. It is such a weight, such a weight. And knowing that he couldn't take the burden of carrying Frodo's ring, Sam says, come, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. So up you get. Let's go. Sometimes when we're discouraged, we must rely on the strength of our friends. The same is true in our times of discouragement and faith. Timothy, Paul says, I see your sincere faith. And if you can't believe it, then believe me. Let me ask you this morning, have you been encouraged by others the way that Paul encourages Timothy, the way that Sam encourages Frodo? Have you ever done that for others? You see, when we are discouraged and weary from the trials in this troublesome world, we need faithful friends like Frodo and Sam and Paul and Timothy whose, whose faith can help us cling on to something sturdy until we are strong enough ourselves to stand up again. This is what the church ought to be. And it's the first way that Paul encourages Timothy. But the second way Paul encourages Timothy is by reminding him what God has already done in the gospel. For Paul, the ultimate reason why Timothy is downcast and discouraged is because he's forgotten the gospel. Paul would have done a great disservice to his protege if he merely implored him to look within himself in his despair. If all Paul could say was, come on now, Timothy, I know you can do it, buck up. Timothy might have been encouraged, yes, for a moment, but that moment would have fleeted away. It would have run dry. Self-determination and willpower can only take us so far when we are tossed in the storms of this life. So Paul, in verses 8 through 10, tells Timothy uh, to look to something outside of himself. He takes him to God and what God has done already in the gospel. He says in verse eight, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
There's a lot in that. There's several parts of the gospel that Paul is bringing before Timothy's mind to help him in his discouragement. One of the ways is that he draws attention to God's divine initiative and his effectual power in salvation. He says God has saved us and God has called us to a holy calling, not by our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. I think when people hear God saved us, they tend to think of forgiveness of sins only. But salvation in the Bible is is much more than the forgiveness of sins. It certainly includes the forgiveness of sins, but it's much more than that. Salvation involves being set free, yes, from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power of sin in our lives. And ultimately, on the last day, from the very presence of sin. And that's and the, the, the point that Paul is, is making by bringing up salvation is that all of salvation, all of it is of God. It's from him, beginning to end. It's all of his grace. And why might he stress this to Timothy? Well, it's because the human heart is always prone to think more highly than it ought. We are prone to give ourselves the credit When things are going well, we tend to think, well, I must have done something rather good. Or on the other hand, when things are going poorly, we think we must have done something wrong. We take our circumstances to be indicative of our self-worth. And Timothy would have been tempted, like every minister of the gospel, to see his progress and his effectiveness in ministry as something that ultimately was up to him. No, no, says Paul. It is all of God. But Paul turns to another thing about what God's done in the gospel that's going to help Timothy. He says that salvation was all fixed in the mind of God before the ages began. You see, Timothy could only see what was in front of him. His mind was occupied with the immediate present. That's why he's discouraged. He sees his church in disarray. He sees his his mentor in prison, and, and he despairs. And we're just the same way. We see a divided nation, rising inflation, uh, wars across the world and natural disasters and we become discouraged. We think that the world's never seen problems quite like the ones in our day. But what does Paul do? He lifts Timothy up out of his context and he takes him back all the way to eternity. He sets his trials within the context of the whole of history, and he tells him something about the problems in this world. Namely, that before man in this world was ever created, the plan of redemption was already worked out fully in the mind of God. Oh, Timothy, says Paul, don't you know that God who planned the beginning from the end has made all things right in its time? How can you be discouraged when you know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose before the ages began? But this plan, which was in the mind of God, it's been carried out in history. Paul wants Timothy to know that his faith, it doesn't rest merely on ideas. It rests on historical facts. He says it's salvation which began in the mind of God in eternity. It's been made manifest in the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. The gospel is of great encouragement. 
because it's not some feel-good, fanciful story. It's not a philosophy of life or uh, some teaching to live by. No, Christianity is about facts. And that's what's going to bring encouragement in our despair. God has acted in history. He has taken on flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He died a death on the cross. And the heartbeat of Christianity is this central supreme fact that he rose from the dead. It is that fact in particular that utterly transformed Jesus' own disciples. They would all go to their graves proclaiming the truth of this resurrection. And this is the climactic thing about what God has done in the gospel that Paul wants Timothy to consider. Why is the resurrection so important? Paul, he understands the resurrection of Jesus to be of first importance because by it, an entirely new order of things has come about. Paul says that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his resurrection. That word abolish, it means to render ineffective, to put something out of joint, to dismantle it. And that's precisely what Jesus has done to death at his resurrection. Yes, we all die, but no longer will our bodies decay in the ground forever. A new order of things has definitively come. Jesus has brought about an entirely new principle of life through his undoing of death. He doesn't simply rise again to die again. He rose to immortal life, or a better translation is incorruptible life. That same incorruptible, arisen life of Jesus is available to all who put their trust in him. That's what it means to be born anew. This this incorruptible life. It comes to us by faith, and it's implanted in us at that moment in seed form. And over time, that seed will grow and blossom, and at the end of the age, it will burst into full effect, and even our bodies will be like Jesus Christ's body, perfect and incorruptible. You see, death for a Christian is a defeated enemy. My dear Timothy, says Paul, don't you know that the worst anyone can do to you is just hasten the day when you will meet Jesus Christ? To live is Christ, yes, but to die is gain. What can man do to you, O Timothy? Death has been put out of joint. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, who gives us the victory. My friends, do you know something of this peace in the face of death? Do you know how to master life the way Paul has? Paul wanted Timothy to know how to do it. And so he expounds the gospel. So in all of our discouragements, when we fear for our future, we must remember what God has already done in the gospel. He's dismantled death. He's brought about incorruptible life. Not because of anything in us, but because of his own purpose and grace. And that leads us to the final encouragement that Paul wants Timothy to know. 
Lastly, Paul encourages Timothy to think on what God will do in his future. Paul doesn't want Timothy to have any illusions about the days ahead. He wants him to know that being a Christian, being a minister of the gospel, will bring about suffering. He says, I was appointed a a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. There is an absolute opposition between the kingdom of this world and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, which guarantees for Jesus' followers suffering in this age. But his final encouragement comes in verse 12. Paul says, yes, I suffer as a Christian and as an apostle, but Timothy, nevertheless, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. That is the essence of the Christian life. There is a buoyancy. There's a nevertheless to the gospel and in the heart of every Christian. And if anyone knew what it was like to suffer for the faith, it was Paul. Elsewhere, he cataloged all of his trials and listened to the depth of the sufferings when he says, I was often in prison with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, without sleep, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and on top of this, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. And he says, Timothy, you know what? It was all worth it. Despite all the pain, all the tears, all the suffering, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. While it is certain you and I will suffer as Christians, it is even more certain that it will be worth it. Now, how can Paul say that? Well, he tells us, he says, For I know whom I have believed. Not I know what I believe, I know whom. I believe. Ideas and philosophy, they're not enough to get us through the darkest hours of life. No, no, Paul says, I know whom I have believed. It's not the propositions of the faith, it's the person, the object of our faith, that is the source of Paul's hope. But you see, Paul had a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, and it changed everything for him. He found Jesus to be of supreme value. He was a a pearl of infinite worth to Paul, someone for whom giving up everything was worth it. He knows whom he has believed, and he continues on by saying, I am convinced that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. Paul lived with the certainty that God would guard his life's commitment to the gospel until the great day of his return. Paul, you see, knew Jesus' words well. 
when Jesus said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. You see, Jesus is the perfect guardian. He is the good shepherd. And again, he says, no one will be able to snatch my sheep out of my hand. Paul wanted Timothy to know that Jesus could be trusted with his very life. I think one of the most beautiful statements of personal trust in the guardianship of Jesus Christ is found in the Heidelberg Catechism, and it begins with this question. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer goes, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Paul knew that Timothy would likely face suffering for guarding the good deposit of the scriptures. So he encouraged him with his friendship. But even more than that, he encouraged him with the gospel and the promise of what Jesus will do to every one of his sheep. And Paul closes his letter at the very end with a plea for Timothy to come to see him one last time. And we don't know if Timothy ever made it to Rome before Paul was executed. But we do know this. At the end of the book of Hebrews, we come to uh, the final greetings, which are typical in the New Testament. And we find these interesting, almost throwaway words at the very end. It says, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. See, apparently Paul's encouraging words had taken root in Timothy's timid heart. He had stood firm for the gospel to the point of imprisonment, just like his mentor, Paul. One of the most striking experiences I have ever had in ministry came when I served as a guest preacher at St. Albans over at the Citadel, one evening, uh, there were about 100 cadets there, weak and weary from their day, and all the freshmen kind of looked like deer in the headlights. Uh, they were exhausted from sleep deprivation and who knows what else. I actually learned uh, in that moment not to take it personally when people fall asleep in my sermons because that's the only place probably that they had time to rest. But after the sermon and after communion, they all stood to pray for, they, they prayed the cadet prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. They, they kind of prayed it like drill sergeants. Uh, they prayed it, however, and the prayer went something like this. It, it, they prayed for God's blessing on the, their institution. They prayed for enlightenment and learning. They prayed for strength to be loyal to every obligation. But what jolted me came at the very end. 
They prayed, grant to each one of us in his own life a humble heart, a steadfast purpose, and a joyful hope that ready, with a readiness to endure hardship. And then the, the hairs on my neck stood up as, as they all shouted at the top of their lungs, and suffer if need be. It was incredibly moving for me because uh, I knew that it was very likely that a lot of the men and women who were praying that prayer have and, and will eventually suffer greatly for their country. And as I drove home later that evening, I was convicted. Here were cadets willing and ready to suffer for the things of this passing world. What was my own willingness to suffer for things eternal? Was I willing to suffer for the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ? My friends, are you willing to suffer? Are you convinced that Jesus is able to bring you body and soul all the way home and that not even the devil himself can snatch you out of his hands? May we be convinced of these things and may we, for things eternal, be ready to suffer if need be. Amen.